Well, welcome everybody to this latest edition of Bell's Brief Chats. Uh, Bell stands for British Educated Life Scientists, a global initiative that's uniquely strengthening the connections of these talented individuals across the globe back to the UK and importantly to each other. This chat features Dr. Callum McRae in Boston, a cardiologist, a geneticist, and a developmental biologist and leader of the One Brave Idea Initiative. Welcome, Callum. Morning, Nigel. Good to talk to you. So let's start right at the beginning of your life and sort of just talk about where you grew up. I mean, you're clearly a Scot. <laughs> um, and also, what sort of led your decision to sort of go and pursue medical school? Uh, so I, I grew up on Skye off the west coast of Scotland, uh, where my father was actually a, a GP, a primary care doctor. Uh, and one of, um, he and all his siblings actually, bar one, were uh, primary care physicians. His uncle had retired there actually from uh, Sevenoaks, um, where he had been a GP when the NHS was formed. And my father was an obstetrician in Aberdeen and was visiting for two weeks. And while he was there, my my uh, my great uncle, his uncle, uh, died suddenly. And so my dad was left as one of the few doctors on the island. I think in those days there were only uh, two doctors, one for the north end and one for the south end. So he had spent most of his life there. Um, I grew up basically, you know, the the main surgery when we when we were young, the main surgery was part of the house. It was uh, an old shooting lodge that had been converted by the NHS into a, a sort of uh, residence for the primary care doctor, but also had the surgery itself. So you were very much immersed in the local medical practice. And so that's really what led me to um, a career in medicine. I, I think I, it, it, it always seemed like uh, second nature rather than um, an active choice, but uh, I certainly did think quite carefully before doing it uh, and ultimately decided that it, it was uh, what I really wanted to do. So I, I certainly uh, felt like I think my first four or five choices in, in terms of the, the direction I wanted to head were related to science and or medicine in, in no yep. particular order. And why any particular reason for Edinburgh, apart from the fact it's a very good school? Uh, I had wanted, so it's a good question. I had wanted to uh, go somewhere that had a, a sort of integrated clinical curriculum from very early on. Uh, and so that was really the, the only thing that uh, came to mind. I, uh, I had experience when I was a child, um, I had uh, a heart murmur. And so in those days, the only, um, the only way to really diagnose it was to get lots of elderly people to listen to it. So I, I remember seeing a sort of litany of gray-haired cardiologists, and uh, that was the first time I actually had been to Edinburgh. And so I really, uh, something about the city connected, and so it was, it was a nice place to, uh, to go and study medicine, and I really enjoyed my time in Edinburgh. It was very fun. I presume that the heart murmur very much led to a decision that cardiology was going to be an area of focus for you. Yeah, I think that was that was probably the main driver. Um, I was always interested in um, uh, quantitative uh, methodology. And so I, I also realized when I was, I did an uh, intercalated year of 
physiology uh, when I was in Edinburgh, BSc in physiology. And one of the things that drew me to the cardiovascular system was the quantitative nature of the work. So everything from the membrane biophysics through to the systems models for understanding integrated physiology. And so that was really the thing that made me choose cardiology in general was I thought it had a, a fairly deep rational basis, unlike some of the other <clears throat> fields of medicine, although they've all They've all progressed in different ways since um, since the mid '80s, but uh, in general, in those days, it was clearly the the one that had the most uh, quantitative methodology, and that was what attracted me to it. So, and was there a, a tug of war? Because you know, obviously, once you'd qualified, uh, it seems like you moved down to London to to work at St George's. Uh, was a was that a decision that you wanted to go down to the big big picture? Uh, I, I really, I mean, one of the things that uh, I recognized uh, was actually um, a lot of what I really wanted to do was move to London because of its just its, its general attractions. And I still have that. Uh, I, I'm most comfortable in the middle of nowhere or in a city that is like London or New York or, or uh, Rome or something in that sort of vein where you really have access to the, the full panoply of uh, cultural uh, attributes, but um, I, I had recognized I wanted to do research. And so actually I first went to the Hammersmith, which was um, I think probably the one of the most important experiences in my life because it was very clear in that setting that uh, scientific endeavor and medicine were really very tightly connected. And so uh, Keith Peters was the chair of medicine just as I arrived, he transitioned and James Scott uh, took over uh, when Keith went to Cambridge. But uh, it was really just such an incredible experience. And I, I really had an amazing uh, time uh, in every single aspect of what I, I did at the Hammersmith. And I, I mean, you know, everything from gastroenterology through the hematology was really deeply imbued with science and uh, uh, everybody that was there was really very focused on how do you move the field forward. And that experience really, I think, made me recognize that in the long run, I wanted to do something that would actually uh, not just um, affect the individuals that I was looking after face to face, but actually have broader impact in terms of the development of new approaches or new therapeutics. So I, um, I was very stimulated by my experience there, and you know, in particular, you know, some of some of the folks were really just in, incredible. I remember to this day, uh, Humphrey Hodgson, for example, who was just like an amazing polymath, um, and really inspired everybody that came in contact with him, uh, with regard to thinking about how every aspect from the initial meeting with a patient through to uh, all of your activities in your research were connected with the, bio the biology of the disease. So a very, very good experience. And then um, I was looking for cardiology registrar jobs. And at that stage, um, there was really, again, an inspirational collection of folks. Uh, John Cam uh, had founded the department at uh, St. George's and actually had taken Bill McKenna from the Hammersmith to St. George's. 
And so that was one of the sort of connections between Hammersmith and cardiology at St. George's. And uh, I really uh, connected. It was a young and vibrant department and, uh, and had grown remarkably in a very short space of time. Uh, and so I, again, I, I had a fantastic opportunity there working, did my uh, cardiology training there, rotated through um, St. Peter's in Chertsey with Michael Joy, also, you know, really fabulous, thoughtful, uh, creative clinician in, in, a, in a district general setting. And you suddenly realize that's, you know, that type of, he, he had done quite a lot of work really thinking about the role of um, cardiovascular assessment in um, maintaining the low risk for uh, pilots. He was, that was his field. Um, obviously close to Heathrow, he himself was a pilot. But suddenly you realized here, here were a group of people who had, in every aspect of their lives, they really had long, lifelong intellectual pursuits that were based around solving much broader problems than just those that you would encounter face-to-face -face with individual patients. Not that that's not a hugely important piece of, of uh, all of their lives and, and still of my life, but it was a very um, stimulating environment. And then... Um, Fortunately, uh, Bill McKenna had uh, really started a very deep effort in the clinical management of uh, inherited heart diseases. And so at that stage, we were seeing you know, huge numbers of referrals uh, of unusual uh, Mendelian uh, cardiovascular disorders, arrhythmias, cardiomyopathies. Um, and the opportunity uh, came to work um, in a, as part of a collaboration with between Bill and the Simon Lab in, here in the Harvard Medical School of Genetics. And so fairly early on, I realized that what I should probably do is get more fundamental experience before I came over here. So I did um, a PhD in uh, human molecular genetics at that point, uh, before I came to really finish up a lot of the scientific work at the end of my uh, thesis going into my postdoctoral work. And so I spent um, the next almost five years in the Seidman lab uh, in genetics at Harvard here. So. It's interesting, you, um, I'm a personal recipient of the great cardiac uh, care at St. George's, so I can very much attest to their expertise. And you've actually answered the sort of next question, which was this um, growing focus on the genetics area, obviously the PhD with, in London. Was that jointly with Harvard um, in terms of getting your PhD? I, I did and, that. And Natalie also just asking about, so clearly US was on your radar screen that, at that stage. Actually, no, I, I had not really um, thought about it quite in those terms. I, um, it was a natural consequence of the work we were doing. It was clear that uh, at that stage, there was really very little in the way of fundamental um, uh, molecular genetics playing out in the UK community. There was some that was starting to, to grow, but there were certainly very few that were disease related in the way in which uh, the, the uh, US system had begun to specialize. So even in, you know, this was 1990, uh, there was a, a specialized uh, molecular genetics 
clinic in uh, the Brigham and Harvard. Um, so that was really a, a almost, well, it was a unique opportunity. I think I, um, it was interesting, I've tended to, I do tend to follow the science. And, the, and I think that's, you know, I like genetics because there was causation. Again, there's also, I quite like, um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I quite like the rigor of, of uh, mathematical approaches uh, to biological problems. And, you know, a lot of the, actually a lot of the original mathematical genetics had been done in Edinburgh many, many years earlier uh, by um, a whole host of folks. Um, and so actually when I was in Edinburgh, even as an, uh, a, a medical undergraduate, um, we got exposed to that through uh, Alan Emery was was my genetics tutor. And so I had sort of realized that genetics had a lot of powerful um, digital directions, if you will. Um, and then the, you know, the, the best place to do what I wanted to do was clearly the Seidman lab. And so it seemed like a natural uh, gravitational pull. And then, you know, Bill was, a, was already working with them. So there's, there's a lot of personal connection. There's a lot of um, happenstance and, and luck. Um, and then there's a sort of sense of, of um, where the science is taking you. And I think all of these things sort of combined. Um, I don't think I ever sort of sat down and said, oh, I have to be in the US. Yeah. You know, but but it's but it, it was cl clearly exploring the unknown is is quite a, a, a nice aspect of all of this. So you, you're working at uh, Brigham and Women's by that time and um, another hospital I've experienced as well. Um, and then uh, not just the Sidemen lab, but then ultimately working in the Fishman lab as well. So you've got to work with some pretty uh, august people. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've been, I mean, one of the things that really is incredible about the Boston ecosystem, as you know, is just that density of yeah. really amazing individuals. And so I had, um, I was actually um, in my medical residence. So after I, so I've almost completed my training completely. Uh, sorry, a bit of a tautology there. I'd almost uh, completed my training in London before I came uh, my clinical training before I came to the uh, US, but I had to do two years of medicine and then two years of cardiology. And so I was trying to work out where I wanted to do my cardiology fellowship, which is the equivalent here. And I remember standing, uh, talking to a whole group of Howard Hughes investigators, Phil Leader, John and Cricket Simon, Whole, uh, Cliff Tabe and a whole crew, and they were all complaining about how difficult it was to be able to afford the mouse costs for animal modeling. And then I walked into, from that conversation at lunch, the, the uh, sign, next seminar I went to was Mark Fishman talking about how he had managed to clone, you know, 60 cardiovascular genes in 12 months, model them all, build a very high throughput approach to understanding uh, genetics and disease biology in the zebrafish. And so that was actually one of the main reasons I went to Mass General for my fellowship because he was across town. Um, and uh, also an incredible mentor. You know, the Simons are, as you know, uh, still uh, the, the definitive uh, human geneticists in cardiovascular disease. 
and uh, Mark in those days really had an amazing uh, breadth. Uh, he had originally worked in neuroscience, but he was the chief of cardiology when I was there and, and had a very fundamental approach to out-of-the-box biological thinking, which, um, and, and, and fundamental genetic screens, which I was uh, very uh, uh, impressed with and deeply attracted to, and it, it sort of resonated with my overall scientific approaches. And so when I first went there, uh, one of the, the initial um, focus in the lab was still uh, largely on the genetics of some of the developmental defects. But a colleague of mine who I still collaborate with, Randy Peterson, who's a, a chemist, um, had just joined uh, from Stuart Schreiber's lab, uh, had just joined Mark's lab for his postdoc. So we arrived on the same day. So we started working on really uh, chemical biology and drug discovery at scale in the fish. Uh, and that's been a major part of what I've been doing for the last uh, 20 years, so. And then as, as, as often happens in that Boston community, then you start to work with other bodies, notably the Broad Institute, and then the Harvard Stem Cell Institute, and uh, then I became obviously a professor at Harvard Medical School. Yeah, so, I mean, as I said, the ecosystem is incredible. You know, every, I mean, I think that, that the Hammersmith certainly was a microcosm of, of that type of environment in, in the UK. And I know there are now lots of, of places that are very similar, um, but in those days, it was really almost a unique environment. Yeah. Every single resident in my residency class um, was just, you know, uh, had a spectacular track record in a particular area of biology, went on to set up their own labs or to do other work. I mean, even the surgical, uh, my surgical colleagues at the time when I was a, a resident of Boston, Atul Gawande was one of the, the surgical uh, residents. And you just, and he already was writing in the New Yorker, even in those days. So you, you just start to realize uh, what, a, what a concentrated experience it really is. And so that's been one of the things I've really enjoyed about it is connecting with and working with people, um, you know, just amazing scientists, amazing clinicians and amazing uh, personalities uh, in what is, you know, as, as you know, ha having spent quite a lot of time in Boston, um, the, the place lives and breathes biomedical science. And so um, a lot of the folks in the medical community, the scientific community, the investment community, the pharma community, they've all come through the same core uh, educational framework and experiences. And so there's really a, a very interesting set of uh, interactions that are a function of that sort of critical mass uh, that I believe make it uh, really a unique place to work in biomedical science, certainly at the moment. And you're seeing that again, actually. I think one of the things that that I, I've seen over the course of the last, certainly the last 15 years is there was quite a heavy uh, dissipation. Things uh, were sort of uh, still very concentrated in Boston, but other areas were really uh, expanding quite rapidly, even uh, to the point where we had some difficulty retaining trainees who wanted to go to the West Coast. And what I've seen 
and there've been a few things that I think have influenced it, but um, what I've begun to see is the, the polarity of that is now moving back to the East Coast. And if anything, our um, uh, sort of the, the competition is coming more in a north-south direction. So there's, there's a lot of really interesting convergence activity happening in New York City um, and all the way up that East Coast. And so um, the, the drivers for that, I think, have been the, a lot of the large pharma companies have moved uh, into the Boston area. And that's been an amazing injection of new talent and, and just created uh, an incredible number of advantages, both for the creation of uh, relationships between academia and industry, but also for uh, the creation of new uh, biotechnology companies. And now that the digital revolution is beginning to sort of merge with the biomedical revolution, you're starting to see advantages from having access to large pharma's R&D shops, which are now almost all of the large pharma there are a couple of exceptions, but uh, I think basically, apart from AstraZeneca and GSK, the, ma the majority of the global pharma companies have their main R&D shop in the Inside 128. And now you're starting to understand how the combination of that plus critical mass of patients, plus the critical mass of other biomedical science is really driving uh, sort of massive uh, investment in the Boston area in this type of intersection. So it's a, it's a very exciting time to be in, in Boston and in New England, um, to be honest, on, on the East Coast of the States, as a result of all of that uh, taking place in rapid succession. And I know uh, the convergence you're talking about there is something that uh, really resonates with you. And clearly, uh, you've embraced that. So you were a PI with the Apple Heart Movement Study, and then obviously uh, this award of the One Brave Idea. Um, perhaps you can just expand a bit on your perspectives in terms of the of this convergence, where the likes of artificial intelligence and technology in general are obviously inserting themselves into the healthcare sphere. Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you know the way I see it is. Uh, it's almost a sort of natural output of activities in each of those fields in their own right. It was sort of almost um, um, uh, predestined that uh, you said that Calvinist in him deeply, deeply rooted. It was almost predestined that uh, that these fields would converge because they're intrinsically complicated. They were analog. I mean, medicine has been analog for so long and resisted digitization to the point of a fault. Um, and in fact, one of, the, one of the saddest things I think about medicine is that it was probably more quantitative when I was in medical school in Edinburgh than it is now. Yeah. Uh, and so as a result of that, what's happened is medicine has sort of fallen behind in lots of other you know, ineffably complex settings. Um, black box training has really been quite effective at helping to move things forward. I mean, even, you know, all you have to do is have lived on the Isle of Skye for 30 years to recognize the weather forecasts in 2021 are a lot better than the weather forecasts in 1961. And the main reason for that is better data coming in, better analytic models, 
and more real-time analysis. And none of that has permeated medicine at all. It's, it's, and it's largely because we've resisted it. We've been almost, I think, afraid of change in some ways. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things that always, well, a couple of recent events that have struck me, the COVID pandemic has been a really interesting stimulus. So, you know, I was chief of cardiology here for four years and spent a lot of time trying to get people to use virtual visits really is a means of um, a pop-off valve for the volume of people coming through the clinic. Uptake was you know, remarkably low and not just in cardiology across the entire field. And it was mainly, you know, well, it's just too difficult. It's not really the uh, effective. And, but when COVID arrived, we were able to flip the entire medical outpatient volume, 90 or 98% of it, we were able to flip from face-to-face -to, -face to virtual in seven days. And so all of the resistance is gone when it's in the medical profession's best interest to actually get it done. And the, you know, there've been a couple of other things that I think have been really interesting um, sort of insights into how dysfunctional medicine has become. Uh, and one of them is, is just the way that the science has worked in COVID. I mean, you can tell there's an immense amount of infrastructure that is not able to work together. Actually, one of the notable exceptions has been the NHS, but even, even there, the research framework, I mean, well, 400, 500 million people have been infected. Um, four and a half million people have died worldwide. And the entire bulk of the information, the rigorous information that we know about COVID comes from you know, less than 50,000 people. And it's just embarrassment. It's like, it's literally an indictment of us that we knew this was coming for a hundred years and we did absolutely nothing to prepare for it. And then, and we're all, you know, it's all still driven not by any systematic integrated approach to solving a problem for society, but actually just by individuals, personal career uh, directions. And that's not a really sophisticated way to run a problem-solving apparatus for a global society. And it's, mm -hmm. become, it's become pretty apparent that that's the case. And the interesting thing is the scientific community has been incredibly well-organized, I mean, and collaborative in ways that, you know, you can, you can palpably sense in Boston. I mean, we, we've, you know, and you talked, you got me into this talking about uh, Apple and, and, and Google and Verily, and, you know, I was, really struck by how all of the all the folks I know in biotech, all the folks I know in the investment community, all of the folks in the technology community on the West Coast, they were all working together from like day one, trying to work out exactly how they could all uh, collaborate and address a lot of the fundamental problems. And I think the success of the vaccines um, and the, the very rapid advancement in uh, drug development that's occurred in the last 18 months, particularly in the, in the viral illness space, is, um, is just a testament to how much better integrated the scientific community has become over the last couple of decades than the medical community has. And so I think those types of things are really the big drivers. And I, I think one of the, for, for this convergence, one of the things that's very apparent is that um, partly because it's the last part of the economy to really be uh, touched deeply by 
digitization and by modern analytics, but also because of the fact that uh, medicine has been hyper-local forever. And now suddenly people are starting to see how scalability and collaboration and, and global approaches to problems are actually accelerants. I think you're starting to see that the only way that that can happen quickly enough to address the current problems in society is if uh, there is a, a fairly rapid uh, merger in terms of interests, if not even in terms of activities between technology, biomedicine, and, and medical practice. Yeah. So, that, I mean, nicely segues back into the, the, the whole uh, one brave idea uh, thing, which was... I think 2017, you won that award against what I guess was intense global competition for that. Um, is it set that it's, it, I know it was a five-year program, is it set for five years? Is it going to continue afterwards? And perhaps for, for the viewers, you can just tell us a little bit more about that actual program. Yeah, well, we did. So uh, first of all, I am under no illusions that uh, that um, I was very fortunate to to get the the award. It's um, I think there are a lot of um, stochastic components to any uh, <laughs> any award uh, giving machinery, and uh, and so I I feel very fortunate to have um, received that uh, amazing investment. What we what we did was we began to think about exactly what I was talking about a few minutes ago. In fact, the, the original pitch was uh, actually to move the locus of medical activity from the, the clinic, not in terms of the interactions, but in terms of the understanding of the biology back to 20 years earlier. So it's almost or even 40 years earlier uh, at the edge of wellness. That was the, the uh, title of my 250-word introductory uh, application, um, and what we what we realized was that if you're um, if you're going to begin to build a analytic pipeline in medicine, you need data coming into it that are actually much higher in velocity, much higher in information content, and intrinsically digital, and that the system at the moment doesn't really do that in any meaningful way. So we began to think about how can we leverage either existing clinical tools, anything from you know, ultrasound, uh, even you know, continuous monitoring of temperature on a watch, those types of things. And how can we characterize the dynamic responses in individuals very early in life to try and understand when can you first begin to detect biological abnormalities. And so what we've done is, is uh, really try and look for latent uh, phenotypes, things that would not otherwise have been detected because they require a particular environmental challenge. And that could be, you know, the Tylenol that you take when you have a fever. It can be uh, a standard meal. Uh, it could be, we worked for some time, one of the most uniformly dosed drugs on the planet is caffeine. Star Starbucks uh, dispenses about uh, 150 million doses and they keep quite a close watch on the actual uh, concentration of caffeine uh, in individual drinks because it's a way of monitoring, I believe, uh, any um, leakage in their supply chain. Uh, <laughs> but um, those types of things end up being you know, very useful data sets 
that are being collected daily at a very large scale. And, and we've really worked pretty hard to show that you can A, do this. You, I mean, some of the best examples, one of my colleagues, uh, who I was fortunate to be able to hire into One Brave Idea, Rahul Deo, has built a essentially completely automated end-to-end -end echo interpretation platform that pulls out completely novel phenotypes that are just not visible to the naked eye, but predict heart failure in a, in a very short space of time. And you can very quickly do genetics on those types of traits and find the causal genes and begin to develop drugs for those particular causal genes. The same thing you can do. Uh, a lot of the work we did, for example, was to take a complete blood count, add a um, panel of uh, small molecule perturbations to it, and show all of these incredibly powerful latent phenotypes in peripheral blood that predict outcomes, you know, not 15, 20 years from now, but outcomes in the next six months, admission with an acute coronary syndrome in this period of time, you know, those types of, of mm -hmm. um, really short-term and actionable predictions, but also show up with target ID and a human assay on day one. And so that's really the focus of what we tried to do is build something that could be useful in clinical practice, but also in fundamental biomedical discovery so that you could bring both fields closer together. And that's, to be 100% honest, what we spent the last four years doing. We believe that we will extend it. Uh, we, it, As you might imagine, it takes quite a while to set up those types of, of relationships anyway. Uh, and so we are, we're, I think, at least 18 months, if not two years behind. I think we have, you know, we officially got up and running uh, sometime in the middle of 2018. But um, we do believe that the, the approaches that we've built, the um, technologies that uh, we've developed and validated, and the insights that we're gaining will be sustainable in the long run. I'm not exactly sure you know, how much we'll do inside academia, how much we'll commercialize, how much we'll try and uh, reimagine that interface between academia and industry. I think there's, if as, as you can imagine, as you start to bring, and you know, I, I know this has happened very much more effectively in the UK uh, than it has for a whole host of conflict and other reasons in the US, um, conflict of interest. Uh, we're, we're seeing slowly academia and industry start to get closer together in the US. Uh, and ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, they're two very separate parts of the same industry, but they've sort of existed as separate industries for a long time. And I think as you start to see information flow become more uniform, and nobody's going to be able to afford to pay for a separate R&D data collection exercise. Um, mm -hmm. There's no other industry on the planet where that's affordable. You know, no, no Apple doesn't have a sort of a research set of customers and a um, and a real life set of customers. It's all part of the same fundamental uh, industry. And I think you're going to see that convergence and uh, convergence drive that uh, merge merger much more closely. Not merger in the financial sense, but merger in a in an intellectual sense. And you're going to see a lot more activity at this boundary. And I think, I'm not certain of this, um, you know, what the rate limiting steps are, but I think one of the biggest, because they're always, I'm sure, longer term financial interests, longer term legal and other interests that, that are difficult to really coordinate people around. But one of the biggest problems is transparency 
of data flow. And so as you start to collect data at such scale, as you start to break down the barriers between individual pharma companies, you've seen that with COVID, as you start to break down the barriers between individual academic medical centers and systems, you're gonna to start to see data transparency and data flows be the thing that drives ideation and execution in biology in the way it does in lots of other areas. And so we're conscious of that and, and trying to build an effort at that interface uh, towards the end of One Brave Idea with a view that that might be a more sustainable part of what we would do. Mm. We're sort of coming towards the close. So I do, I want to jump back to the UK. And um, I know from previous conversation with you that um, you're increasingly, it's almost the circle of life premise that you're sort of starting to look at the UK and build your ties again. Um, so two things, sort of, how do you see that potentially playing out? And two, um, are you, I'm interested in your perceptions of where the UK is at, where its big opportunities are, uh, where its strengths and where its weaknesses might be at the moment. Well, I, I think, you know, the UK has always been an amazing um, place for biomedical science. It always, uh, you know, hits well above its weight punches well above its weight. And I think there are lots of really uh, great structural reasons for that. I mean, the, the first of all, obviously, there's, you know, an amazing history of fundamental science that goes back, you know, a 1000 years uh, in Oxford and Cambridge, there is a, um, a system, an actual system uh, for the delivery of healthcare. Uh, and it it, it has much more uniformity, it has much more integration than is simply feasible in, in other settings. And in fact, when you look at you know, the average size of a biomedical population in, in, a clinic, in a single clinical system, the NHS is really one of probably the top two in terms of just the size of the population in the world. And so that immediately makes it a unique place. But in addition to that, I think there's also unique culture in the NHS. I, I still uh, am amazed at how, you know, no matter where you are, as I said, you know, when I was in Chertsey, when I go and um, visit um, relatives in Inverness, uh, you know, the, the intellectual and academic engagement of every clinician in the National Health Service is transformatively high. Um, and I don't think we fully appreciated. I certainly didn't fully appreciate that when I was there. I don't think people outside fully appreciate it to this day. I, I suspect people inside don't fully appreciate it either. Yeah, yeah um, I think you're absolutely right. And so there's really a remarkable opportunity uh, for it to be the, uh, you know, an, a critical part of the template around which a lot of this convergence occurs. And you're seeing that, you know, I was, I was struck um, by the uh, recent uh, interaction, the recent agreement between uh, Novartis and, and the NHS that I think uh, uh, John Bell had, had driven. Just, you know, that, that to actually be able to accomplish something that's so out of the box, you know, it would have been almost unthinkable even a couple of years earlier, is something that, that I think the NHS has the ability to do because it acts as a single entity. I think the, the other thing that, that I've been impressed with, I have a couple of years ago had the uh, chance to serve on an NIHR committee, was also the fact that 
research and clinical care are very tightly aligned by, by virtue of the funding. And suddenly you realize that's actually a critical piece of what it is that is the, I suppose, the ethical and moral basis of the NHS is that these things are actually integrally related. And, and I think that actually is a, is a really important um, property. It's a really important mechanical force in driving change in medicine. And um, I don't think that that exists anywhere else in the same way. I don't see the, the level of alignment between research and clinical care being so high in other places. And you know, the leadership uh, of the scientific effort in, inside the NHS and inside NIHR, inside DHSS has been driving that for, for a long time. And, it, and it's put the UK and the NHS I think in a, in a position of great strength for the future, you know, um, uh, Dame Sally Davis and then Chris Whitty have really been, you know, I think advocates for driving, not just in the sort of central, traditional, academic parts of the NHS, but pervasively through the NHS, this sense that research is an integral part of, of your care. And that's partly why almost all of the the meaningful large-scale rapid insights in COVID came, anything that wasn't in a vaccination trial, and most of the things that were in a vaccination trial came out of the UK. And that's why the system was in place. Uh, having said that, there's definitely, you know, I'm struck by the fact that despite the systemness, the the electronic health record, the the uh, digitization of medicine in the UK is, is considerably behind where it is in, in the US. I think that might be an advantage in the long run because I think actually um, building on-premises local electronic health records and connecting them is not going to be the future. I think you're starting to see even already the locus of, of data collection move closer and closer to the patient. And ultimately, as I said, if you're moving into early life and that's where the information or a lot of the information is going to be collected about your biology, then I really think you're not going to be able to center it around a physician or around a healthcare delivery organization. It's going to need to be part of the individual's data record. You know, your, um, your music preferences and your shopping history, um, if suitably de-identified and, and seeded, are probably more rich in information than most of what we collect in uh, in the first few years of your medical encounters. That's for sure. So I think, I think a lot of that will... I think you're touching on a particular hobby horse of mine, which has been that actually uh, there is a dialogue that goes on re really across both government, academia, uh, industry, charities, etc that might be helped by the geography of the UK being a relatively small country, but equally is not seen for the strength it is in terms of that dialogue. Uh, I think it offers enormous opportunities um, to engage with the UK. So I guess uh, that brings me full circle back to Bells and just uh, perhaps you can leave us with your impressions in terms of how you what you, role you see for Bells in this environment um, in, t in terms of this evolving world, really? Well, I think, and this was, you know, obviously one of the reasons that uh, I was so excited to, to join Nigel was the fact that 
there, there is a really large expat community in Boston, but it's also moving backwards and forwards between Europe, UK and, and the US. The whole of biomedicine is becoming considerably more global. And I think the, the British educated life scientists have an experience in the main of what it can be to be more yes. integrated. And I think at this critical inflection point, that's a very useful set of insights to bring to the table as you know, things are changing more rapidly than they have done certainly in the last 30 years. And I suspect for, you know, for 100 years, and they're going to change exponentially more rapidly. And I do believe that the, the Bells community is ideally positioned to play a major role in this, both in the UK and, and worldwide. And uh, I'm and, you know, excited to join the community and to be part of it. I, I've known a lot of folks uh, in the community here for many years. I think uh, you know well that the, you know, the British consulate has always hosted uh, a whole series of meetings through the year. Uh, but extending that more broadly in the in the Bell's organization, I think, is really um, exciting. And I think there are some remarkable opportunities for British um, educated um, biomedical scientists to really make huge contributions uh, as medicine undergoes changes that I think will be, uh, you know, really quite challenging uh, for folks who haven't seen how it's possible to work in a, in a broader and more integrated setting along the lines of what the UK has really had for the last 50 years. Well, on that brilliant note, I will thank you very much, Callum, for this conversation. I hope that it's not gonna be the last time we have an opportunity uh, to do so, uh, but thank you, Dr. Callum McRae. Likewise, Nigel, have a great day and great to talk to you. All right.